This audio file comes from the Libri Ideas Library at www.libri-ideas-library.org. The library contains over 1,000 lectures and discussions which explore questions about the reality and relevance of Christianity. We ask you to respect the copyright for this audio file which belongs to Libri Fellowship. The file is for personal use to share with friends, family and colleagues, but please do not publish the material in any format or post it on a website without seeking permission from Libri Fellowship. Please note that views expressed in the lecture and discussion time do not necessarily represent the views of Libri Fellowship. Go. Um, so welcome to Libri, welcome to the fourth lecture in our fall lecture series. Um, next week... We will be hearing, uh, same time, same place, hearing from our very own Sarah Chestnut. Her lecture is entitled, To Be Bread Broken, Loafing Around with Jesus. So that sounds intriguing. Um, but tonight, our title is, The Baptized Imagination 2, Image and Incarnation. And don't be alarmed by that too. That means there's a part one. <laughs> there is. Um, but that's okay. You can go back and listen to that on our podcast and you will, you don't need all of that information to understand what I'm going to share with you tonight. Um, yeah, so be reassured if you didn't hear that. Um, that, that first lecture was primarily Definitional. I was trying to define what I meant by the word imagination. Um, and I structured it as a walk in the woods, and it kind of meandered all over the territory of the imagination. And I kind of pointed out some trailheads, if you will, but we didn't really stop very long. We didn't go very slowly um, down any of those side trails. But tonight... Um, my hope is to go down one of those trails, if you will, and um, go really deeper into an aspect of the imagination, and particularly the Christian imagination, the imagination redeemed and in the process of redemption, what we're calling for short, the baptized imagination. So we're just going to go for it, dive in. It's mixing metaphors with the woods, but whatever. Um, so I'm going to review review a little bit first um, some of the definitions of imagination, imagination that I think are really helpful for us. So if you just Google define imagination, this is the first thing that will pop up. Imagination is the faculty or action of forming new ideas or images or concepts of external objects not present to the senses. Okay, got it? Um, a similar definition is given by George MacDonald, who was a 19th century author who really influenced uh, C.S. Lewis and Tolkien and a lot of other people and did a lot of work on the imagination. He defined the imagination this way. The imagination is that faculty which gives form to thought. Not necessarily uttered form, but form capable of being uttered in shape or sound or in any mode upon which the senses can lay hold. Okay, so if we, if we take these two definitions of the imagination together, um, what do we have? Notice that this is not talking about making stuff up. That's, that's actually not part of our conversation tonight, the way we commonly use, like, oh, it's just imaginary, just made up. Um, and if you want to hear, hear more about 
why I'm not using imagination in that sense, I refer you to part one. Um, and we can talk more about that in the discussion as well if you do have questions about that. But if we, if we look at these two definitions together, what are, what are we looking at? And I would, I would amend the Google definition a little bit. Um, I would say that imagination is the faculty or action of forming new ideas or images or concepts of external objects not immediately present to the senses. That means not, not at first, maybe, or initially present to our senses. Um, so if I say, imagine the most beautiful purple flower you can think of. You got it? Okay, you all see something in your mind's eye, even though there's no, as far as I can tell, no beautiful purple flower immediately present to our senses in this room. But the immediately is important because the thought of a flower already has some kind of substance in your mind. And now that you're seeing it with your mind, you could describe it in words, which the rest of us would sense with our auditory sensors. Or maybe you could draw a picture of it, which all the rest of us could sense with our visual sensors. Um, If you were a perfumer, maybe you could make a scent that would communicate this purple flower that is in your mind to our olfactory sensors. Uh, If you're a baker, you could turn this flower into a cupcake that we could taste, right? So you get the idea. Your imagination can give form, both immaterial form in your mind and potentially material form to this thought that you have. So we're going to come back to that in a minute. But first, another really foundational piece that I want to review, and this is a quotation of George MacDonald again. He says, The imagination of man is made in the image of the imagination of God. God has an imagination, and part of our being made in his image is that we have imaginations too. And this means all of us, whether or not you think of yourself as artistic or creative, you have an imagination. You saw a purple flower in your mind. Um, your imagination made that flower exist in your mind. And so the, the purpose of this lecture, the direction I'm hoping to go with this lecture, is to sort of, is hopefully to elucidate that connection between um, these things and the imagination, and also the importance of these two key pieces. The idea of an utterable form <coughs> and the image of God. So, naturally, we're going to begin with Shakespeare. Um, so we're, we're still using our walk in the woods metaphor. We're going to go deep into the woods, the Midsummer Night's Dream, wild and wacky woods. Um, and as we, as we look at this, I'm, I'm really relying uh, a lot on the work of Malcolm Geith, both in this book, which is called Lifting the Veil, Imagination and the Kingdom of God, and other things that he's written and um, and spoken about a lot. He's, he's done a lot of reading of this passage and work on the imagination. Um, so in this part of the play, Midsummer Night's Dream, it's okay if you're not familiar, but this is a speech that the rational, clear-headed Duke of Athens, Theseus, is giving, um, basically saying that he doesn't believe anything that these young couples who spent the night in the woods cavorting with fairies, he doesn't believe anything that they're saying. Um, and, and the joke, though, is actually on Theseus, who gives this speech, because this speech ends up being one of Shakespeare's most beautiful 
and incisive descriptions of the poets, which is to say Shakespeare's own art. This is what Theseus says. Lovers and madmen have such seething brains, such shaping fantasies that apprehend more than cool reason ever comprehends. The lunatic, the lover, and the poet are of imagination all compact. The poet's eye in a fine frenzy rolling doth glance from heaven to earth, from earth to heaven, and as imagination bodies forth the forms of things unknown, the poet's pen turns them to shapes and gives to airy nothing a local habitation and a name. So first notice what Theseus says about shaping fantasies, which is the phrase he's using for imagination. He says that they apprehend more than cool reason ever comprehends. So he's setting up an opposition between fantasies or imagination and reason. But unwittingly, uh, he's paying imagination the compliment of saying that it apprehends, it catches, much more than cool reason can comprehend. We're going to really focus on this second second block here, um, where it talks about the poet's eye. Um, the poet's eye moves from heaven to earth, earth to heaven, and we can think of heaven as representing the sphere of reality that isn't usually immediately uh, present to our senses. The immaterial, supernatural, metaphysical, whatever word you want to use for that, heaven. And earth is the sensory world, the empirical world, material, natural, physical world. Um, So Theseus is describing how the poet takes these glances between these two worlds and using his or her imagination bodies forth or makes forms and shapes from them, material forms and shapes, material forms using material pen and material paper, um, shapes that are particular and placed. He gives them a local habitation and a name. So here is how how Malcolm Guy interprets this passage. It's a little bit of a longer quote, so bear with me. For most people, the glance to heaven is just that, a glance and no more, a fleeting glimpse, easy to dismiss and overwrite, ignore or explain away. But the artist and poet, by the magical bodying power of imagination, is able to make a body and build a home for that fleeting glimpse, that airy nothing that is always escaping us. The artist makes a home in which that glimpse can root and grow, be found again and again, made knowable and available to us. The artist, in her imaginative bodying forth, is building a bridge between apprehension and comprehension, All great art is a bridge with one foot in the world of comprehension, the visible, the earth, and one in the realm of apprehension, the invisible, heaven. So in this this book, which is where that that quotation comes from, Geit is primarily addressing artists, but I don't think that this passage, even though it talks about poets, is primarily or is only exclusively about poets or artists. I think Shakespeare is giving us a really key description of the imagination's work imagination that you and I, with the poet, have. C.S. Lewis called the imagination the organ of meaning. Um, in In the first lecture I gave on this, I talked a lot about 
the imagination being our integrative faculty, the thing that bridges all of our ways of knowing, brings them together. It catches that glance from earth to heaven, heaven to earth, and then bodies forth a form. We don't usually see the word body used as a verb like this. It's very significant that Shakespeare uses that as a verb. You remember what MacDonald said? Imagination gives form to thought. The imagination gives form to thought so that it lasts longer than a glance. And this is something that I want you to really hold on to as a driving idea um, through everything that I'm going to say. We can say, accurately, that the imagination incarnates thought. Incarnate means to give something flesh. Um, The imagination gives thought a body. And this is really key. So like, like George MacDonald said, the imagination doesn't necessarily give uttered form to thought. It doesn't necessarily give a material form to thought, but it gives a form that's capable of being uttered, capable of being expressed in material form, capable, in other words, of incarnation. Okay, And, and what I mean by material form doesn't necessarily mean something that you can hold in your hand. The words that I'm speaking right now are a material thing. They're sound waves in the air that are hitting your eardrums and they, they have meaning because they're, they're moving from my imagination to yours. Um, but they are a material thing. So it doesn't necessarily mean something you can hold in your hand, but it means something physical. <clears throat> that's, that's an important, important thing to keep in mind. There's a lot of technical stuff that I'm, that I'm um, getting through here. This is going to land, trust me. (laughs) So Dorothy Sayers, in her book, The Mind of the Maker, she says this. She says, it is of the nature of the word to reveal itself and to incarnate itself, to assume material form. Word here just means that form of thought that we're talking about, the form that imagination gives to thought. And earlier... uh, before she kind of comes to that conclusion, she says this, and it's a little bit complicated, but think of the word imaginative in the place where she says creative, because I think she's talking about the same thing that we're talking about here. She says, the creative act, the imaginative act, does not depend for its fulfillment upon its manifestation in a material creation. Nevertheless, it is true that the urgent desire of the creative mind is toward expression in material form. To write the poem, or of course to give it material form in speech or song, is an act of love towards the poet's own imaginative act and toward his fellow beings. So here's what I want us to take away from that. The, um, The works of the imagination are by nature creative or generative. They desire expression in material form. And that that's to say that they make something whether that something is as simple as a one-syllable word that someone could say, or as complex as the ceiling of the Sistine Chapel. Imagination desires communication. And this is a really key part of imagination's nature. Imagination bodies forth the forms of things unknown and gives to airy nothing a local habitation and a name. Keep that in your minds, and I think this is going to become clearer uh, what this means as we turn now to looking at the works of God's imagination.
Um, George MacDonald says this about God's imaginative work. His world, the world that we live in. We live in and move in and have our being in. He says this. All the processes of the ages are God's science. All the flow of history is his poetry. So most of the Bible is, or all of the Bible really, is the record of God's work to reconcile fallen humanity, creation, to himself, to bring them back into the right order that he created and designed. So God has, God has ideas about how this reconciliation is going to take place, and he's communicated these ideas to, to people. His thought has taken form in what he has made. The heavens declare the glory of God. The skies proclaim the work of his hands. Day after day, they pour forth speech. Night after night, they display knowledge. For example, that's from Psalm 19. That's what, that's what theologians call general revelation, God speaking in a general way that all of us have access to. And then there is what theologians call special revelation. Words. Words may be literally written on stone tablets by God's hand. Or the word of the Lord coming audibly to someone in the wilderness. Uh, like Ben talked about last week, a vision like Isaiah saw of, of God's throne room. Um, a few weeks ago in prayer meeting, we talked about this idea of the angel of the Lord. God appearing in the Old Testament in some kind of embodied form. Maybe like a human or maybe like a burning bush. Um, and then there's the ordinary human language that God has used to communicate. Um, ordinary language that uses metaphors and symbols and stories and images over and over again. So through the Bible, we see how God's thought has taken utterable shape. It's taken a form, a, sen- a shape that our senses can take hold of. He's never stopped speaking using those kinds of terms, terms that our senses, all five of them and more, if we have more than five, um, can take hold of. Imagination desires communication, and God's imagination is no exception to that. Here's how the author of Hebrews said it. In the past, God spoke to our forefathers through the prophets at many times and in various ways. You know how this continues. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed heir of all things and through whom he made the universe. The son is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being, sustaining all things through his powerful word. So the word here in this verse rendered representation, exact representation, is the Greek word for stamped or engraved. Some, some translations will say the exact imprint of his nature. Um, remember that imagination bodies forth the forms of things unknown and gives to airy nothing a local habitation and a name. Now, the son, the second person of the Trinity, was by no means airy nothing um, before his incarnation as Jesus of Nazareth. But in some ways, as far as we were concerned, he might as well have been. Um, If you follow the story of the Bible, before the incarnation, we only had glances of what God's plan of reconciliation was. We only had glimpses of God's thoughts. But in these last days, 
God has spoken to us by his son. Jesus Christ, the ultimate imaginative act of God. Am I saying that Jesus is imaginary, as we commonly use this word? No. Are you paying attention? This is not what we're saying here. Imagination is deeply concerned with what is really real. The really real things that even sometimes we um, can't experience through our emotions or our senses. Um, Really real things beyond those things, beyond our our senses. Um, I think for some of you, uh, when I quoted that passage from Shakespeare, maybe some other more familiar words were coming to mind. Words we hear every Advent at least, right? The word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory, the glory of the one and only who comes from the Father, full of grace and truth. No one has ever seen God, but God, the one and only who is at the Father's side, he has made him known. The word was bodied forth in flesh and made his local habitation among us. And we saw the invisible, never-before-seen, formerly unknown God and his amazing thought, his plan of grace and truth. That plan was given shape in space and time for us in the person of Jesus Christ. So remember what I said about the imagination being our integrative faculty, the faculty that we use to make sense of all the data that's constantly streaming at us? Here's what Colossians says about Jesus Christ, the ultimate imaginative work of God. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For by him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible. All things were created by him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. In him all things hold together. Goes on to say this, For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through the blood of his cross. Malcolm Geit calls the incarnation of the Son as Jesus Christ of Nazareth the prime imaginative and communicative act that underwrites and makes possible all others. Elsewhere he says, the artist must glance from heaven to earth, from earth to heaven, and the artistic imagination must body forth the heavenly into the earthly, make the connection and the bridge. But we see that Christ himself is that connection and bridge. If we understand the incarnation aright, then we will see Christ as the incarnation of God's meaning in all things, as well as his love for all things. God's meaning in all things, that that is the incarnation of God's organ of meaning, his imagination. So Jesus, the image of God, the exact representation of his being incarnate, is God's imaginative work bodied forth and given a local habitation and a name. He's that bridge that stands firmly fixed between heaven and earth, earth and heaven. His grace and truth and his reconciling work, if you if you recall the earlier part of that passage, apprehend far more than cool reason can comprehend. In Jesus, heaven and earth, earth and heaven, and all of those all the things that those two words represent 
are reconciled, reintegrated. You guys, this is so beautiful. You're just sitting there like bumps on a log, but this is very exciting. Do you see do you see how Shakespeare was thinking God's thoughts after him? We could stop here all night, but we're not going to. We're not going to. You guys thought you'd get out of here early, but um, we're not going to because even though Jesus is God's prime imaginative act, God's imagination doesn't stop there. Jesus is uniquely the exact representation of God's being in whom the fullness of the Godhead dwells bodily. But we, too, are made in God's image. We are made in God's image. Yes, the the Bible and our own experience make it very clear that we are fallen and broken and sinful. What Francis Schaeffer called glorious ruins. We are glorious ruins. But the image of God in us has not been erased. um, And it is being made new. Just a couple chapters after the um, the bit that I read uh, from Colossians earlier about Jesus, it says this to those who follow Jesus. It says, do not lie to each other since you have taken off your old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge in the image of its creator. Um, this is sort of a side note here, but it is also relevant. I want to point out that in the first part of this verse, where it talks about don't lie to each other since you've taken off your old self and put on the new self. That really sounds like the language of baptism to me. And if that's not clear enough for you, just a few verses earlier, Paul begins by saying, since you have been raised with Christ, which is definitely the language of baptism. So I'm pointing this out to show you that the phrase baptized imagination actually makes a lot of sense. It's not just arbitrary. Um, so what, what does Paul say hear about this new baptized raised with Christ self it is being renewed in knowledge in the image of its creator so the word knowledge that's translated knowledge here it doesn't just mean knowing some key facts like the multiplication table or the kings and queens of England or something Um, it means to know something thoroughly and well to understand something to recognize like you would recognize someone that you know it's the, it's the same word that Jesus uses in Matthew 11 when he talks about how he and the Father know each other. It's knowledge that takes into account all of our ways of knowing, including our reason and our imagination, our minds and our hearts and our guts, all our ways of knowing. Renewed in knowledge in the image of its creator. Another word that's important to pay attention here, to here is image. Um it was used about Jesus earlier in Colossians. And this is a translation of the Greek word icon, which I think significantly we get our English word icon from. And an icon is a picture that you not only look at, even though it may very well be very beautiful and worth looking at for its own sake, um, but it's also a picture that you look through. Uh, It's a window that points beyond itself to something that is really real um, beyond itself. I think those are just some helpful definitional categories to have in our minds. So what does this renewal in knowledge and the image of our creator look like? How do we move from the work of God's imagination 
to the work of our imaginations, which are made in the image of his imagination. We're going to look at a verse from the book of Ephesians next. I know we're just like blazing through all these epistles here, but um, I think the whole book of Ephesians uh, can be read as a prose poem that is answering that exact question. How do we move from the work of God's imagination to the work of our imaginations? Um, and you might think that that's a stretch, but I challenge you to do it. Take that question and read read the book that way. Um, here's just a little tiny example in the beginning. Well, actually throughout, but Paul gets really excited about this idea of what he calls the mystery, God's mystery. Um, in In our terms, he's talking about the thought that God had that is, has now been uttered, expressed in Jesus, in Jesus' life and death and resurrection. Um, yeah, he's talking about the work of God's imagination. So we can talk more about that in the discussion if you're interested. But we're going we're gonna to focus now. How do we move from the work of God's imagination to our imagination? Here's one uh, little verse that's a great example of this. It's from uh, Ephesians 2, Ephesians 2.10. Very familiar verse to many of you, I'm sure. For we are God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So the we in this verse uh, means Christians. Paul is writing to a church in Ephesus. Those who were dead in their trespasses and made alive with Christ by God's grace. That's from the verses just preceding this. And again, that's the language of baptism, really, of the reality that baptism represents. And what are we? We are God's workmanship. So that word workmanship is uh, sometimes also translated as handiwork or masterpiece or work of art. It's the Greek word poema, which is where we get our word poem from. Um, We are the products of God's poet's pen and poet's eye. Works of God's imagination. And so what, is, what does that mean? What does that have to do with us? I mean, in terms of like what we do. We're created in Christ Jesus for good works. So in this book called Being Human, The Nature of Spiritual Experience, a Libri classic, um, Ronald McCauley, I can't speak, Ronald McCauley and Jerem Bars talk quite a bit about what it means that we're made in the image of God. They write this, The whole purpose of the Christian life is the recovery of the original image of God. To be human is to be a reflection, as a finite and physical person, of the experience of the infinite person who made us. So to say that we were created for good works is not the same as saying that we are created to follow the rules. This is really important. Ephesians and really all of the New Testament letters are making this case over and over and over again that we are not slaves to the law, but we're children of God. We're heirs of God. Good works is not stuffy, stultifying, boring legalism. It's creative. It's generative. It's risky. It's adventurous. Macaulay and Bars say the same thing. They say that we, that we are made in the image of God implies an affirmation rather than a negation of life. Every person is an artist. The whole of life is a creative act. We are all weaving, creating life. 
So another place, Macaulay said this in a shorter, shorter, more concise way. We are all made to be creative, and our medium is life. In other words, we all have an imagination, and our imagination is made to body forth in our good and creative works. In the mind of the maker, Dorothy Sayers quotes this Russian philosopher named Berdyaev. I think I'm saying that right. I don't know. Um, who wrote this. God created man in his own image and likeness, i.e., made him a creator too, calling him to free spontaneous activity and not to formal obedience to his power. Free creativeness is the creature's answer to the great call of its creator. Man's creative work is the fulfillment of the creator's secret will. So as a, as a rule follower myself, I can see some of the rule followers in the room bristling a little bit. Free spontaneous activity and not formal obedience to his power. But the Christian life is all about obedience, right? The Bible tells us to obey over and over again, right? Doesn't it? So I think, I think we get... We get muddled here when we think that freedom means doing whatever the heck we want whenever we feel like it. Um, that's not the Bible's definition of freedom. Uh, in the Bible, freedom means living according to your design. Living according to the poem of your life. The poem that God is writing through your life. Malcolm Geit writes this, God is reading us the poem of our being, and we need to hear it. The imagination is there to help us perceive the great poem of our existence in its height and depth. If you are a Christian, all of those verses about being a new creation, about being a dearly loved child of God, being a new self that is being renewed in knowledge in the image of its creator, those describe your design, your nature. Your life is your medium but you don't get to define the constraints of that medium, of what is good or bad for that medium. God defines those because he's the creator and sustainer of life. He invented life. He gets to define it. I think Dorothy Sayers clarifies this in a really helpful way. Um, she says, The business of the creator, lower lowercase c creator, the business of the creator is not to escape from his material medium or to bully it, but to serve it. But to serve it, he must love it. If he does so, he will realize that its service is perfect freedom. This is true not only of all literary art, but of all creative art. And I would clarify using our terms. This is true of all imaginative work. Um, Macaulay and Bars share the same idea in words that are maybe more familiar to those of us who are used to more Christian language rather than artistic language. Um, they say... Jesus' summary of the law and the prophets, that we are to love God and our neighbor, neighbor, can be viewed as a clarification of the phrase image of God in Genesis 1. The image loves because love is of God, and the image's purpose is to love. Here is the definition of what it means to be a human. And love doesn't mean doing whatever you feel like whenever you feel like it. Creative Freedom is in service to the medium. If you want to be a poet, you had better love and serve language. If you want to be a painter, you had better love and serve paint. And if we want to be an artist, 
in living, which is what we were all designed to be, um, we had better love and serve life. And not, I don't mean life in some new agey, capital L, esoteric way. I mean our own real lives, internal lives and external lives, our networks of relationships, our vocations, our locations, our limitations, our real lives. I'd encourage you to read through the New Testament and pay attention to the rules that are given in the New Testament. These aren't rules about what to do if you find mold in your house or if you're bull or somebody or someone steals a coat. Uh, they aren't rules about how many sheep to sacrifice to atone for particular sins. Uh, most of the commands in the New Testament require great work of the imagination to live out. Just Here's a, just a little brief example. I could have picked so many things. Uh, but in my Bible study, we just did this passage. So this is from 1 Peter. One verse, four commands. Honor everyone, love the brotherhood of believers, fear God, honor the emperor. Each one of these could represent a lifetime of creative work acting that out in your particular, unique life context. And I realize that that might not sound like freedom to you. That might sound really daunting. How do we know if we're doing what's good then? How do we know if we're walking in those good works that God prepared in advance for us to do? That, that sounds scary and complicated. And how do I know that I'm coloring inside the lines? <laughs> so this lecture is about the baptized imagination, image and incarnation, in case you forgot the title already. Um, what is the image that our new selves are being renewed into. It's the image of Jesus, the one in whom our life is now hidden, Colossians says, the one with whom we died and rose again, that, again, that, it, which is that reality that we acted out in our baptisms. In 2 Corinthians 3, it says this, Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is Freedom, that word again. And we, who with unveiled faces all reflect the Lord's glory, are being transformed into his likeness. That's icon, image, again. We are being transformed into his likeness with ever-increasing glory, which comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. So when you're drawing or painting from a reference image, um, or or from um, a model or still life or something in front of you, you look at it. A lot. You don't just kind of glance at it once or twice. You study it. If you're if you're using a, a two-dimensional image, you might flip it over so you can see the shapes in a different way. You really examine it. I had a drawing teacher that used to say, draw what you see, not what you know. Um, we all know that the shape of an apple is round, right? Apples are round. But if you look at an apple sitting in front of you, you realize that it's actually kind of a blobby square. Um, it's not going to look like a perfect circle. Um, Jesus is our reference image. And if we're going to draw what we see and not what we maybe think we know because we glanced once or twice at him in the past, this is going to be our operative question. How particularly did Jesus, as the image of the invisible God, the incarnation of God's love and meaning, how did Jesus live out his freedom in service to the medium of his life. 
that's what the New Testament is there for. That's what the Gospels are there for, to answer that question, uh, among other things. <laughs> but here's one place that we do get an answer, uh, an, an answer is offered to us in Philippians 2. This passage uh, you may be familiar with as um, one of the earliest hymns that we have, or probably the earliest hymn that we have, um, from the very early church. And it could be called the Hymn of the Incarnation. Christ Jesus, being in the very form, oops, sorry, yep, being in the very form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the very form of a servant, being made in human likeness. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and given to him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Musician and theologian uh, Michael Card, who has actually set this ancient hymn to music much more recently, um, says this about this hymn. He says, at its heart, the song is telling us what it means to be created in the image of God. How does he know that? Well, the way that this hymn is prefaced before Paul quotes it in Philippians is this. Let the same attitude be in you that was also in Christ Jesus. Jesus Christ, very God of very God, took on the form of a servant. And servants are like a gentle translation. It's a slave. He bodied forth the thought of God himself. God himself is the kind of person who comes near, stoops low, humbles himself, and serves. And this was the shape of Jesus' life. And as we are renewed in his image, it's the shape of our lives. I'm going to say this again. This is really important. Whether we are talking about Jesus or about us made in the image of God, humility and service are the shape of the image. And paradoxically, this is where the freedom to live the poem of our existence is to be found. When our life is hidden with Christ who blazed this trail before us, we are free to be truly creative in our unique situations without without false humility or pride. Michael Card talks a lot about this in his book um, that's called Scribbling in the Sand. Um, And he quotes uh, this Christian artist named Harold Best, who said, Which is the greater mystery, that man is artistically creative, or that in his creativity he may empty himself and still remain artistic? So besides his recorded sermons, we don't have any physical things that Jesus made that I'm aware of. Um, while he was walking on this earth. Like, there's nothing in a museum in Israel somewhere that's, like, carved by Jesus of Nazareth, carpenter, you know. Um, and, um, and while we know that Jesus was that kind of a maker, he did make things like that with his hands, um, and that he was, we know that he was a wordsmith. He wove parables and poetry and prophecy uh, into what he taught. I think we less often attend to Jesus as actor. Jesus using the medium of his body to show in a way that our senses can grasp onto what is really real. 
Think about this. Think about the move, his movements across the Judea and Galilee that were his stage. Think about his obscure scribbling in the sand when the religious leaders brought a woman caught in adultery to him for judgment. We don't know what he wrote, but we know what he did. We know what he acted. Think about his deliberate costume change when he took off his outer garment, put on a towel, knelt, and washed his disciples' feet. Think about breaking the bread and passing the cup. Think about all the painful details of his torture and crucifixion. Think about his post-resurrection beach breakfast picnic. (laughs) These are all examples of Jesus living out the image of God in creativity and freedom, using the materials at hand, the materials of his life, dirt, towel, water, bread, charcoal, fish, hands, feet, flesh. Humility comes from the Latin word for earth or soil, earthiness, groundedness. Earthy humility and embodied service are the shape of the image. God's imaginative work bodied forth in Christ continues. Philippians 2 kind of hints at this for us. Jesus has been given a name that is above every name, a particular name. But have you considered that Jesus still has a local habitation? His life of service for us actually continues as he sits at God's right hand, interceding for us, as he works somewhere, somehow, mysteriously, but in a real place, preparing a place for us. And God's imaginative work continues here and now, too. His great thought, God's great thought that all things should be reconciled to him in Jesus, continues to be bodied forth in his church and his people. The church, God's people, I don't mean a building, I mean God's people, are that location where earth meets heaven and heaven meets earth. It's not at all by accident. It wasn't just a handy metaphor. It's deeply real uh, that the Bible calls the church, God's people, both Christ's body and his house. And God's great thought continues to be bodied forth in you in a way that only you can image in your local habitation under your name, Anna, Ben, Sarah, Sam, Jake. Michael Card says it this way. The art that naturally flows out of our obedient response to the call of God on our lives can, by grace, become water to wash the feet of sisters and brothers, cold water to quench the thirst of an unbelieving world. Vincent Van Gogh reportedly said, The more I think it over, the more I feel that there is nothing more artistic than loving people. The image's purpose is to love. The shape of the image is humility and service, which is the Bible's definition of love. It's laying down your life. But how does that look bodied forth 
in your situation, your vocation, your location, how that looks takes imaginative work. Love is an endless act of imagination. God's hidden thought, his mystery, now revealed, bodied forth in Christ and in the church, becomes the works of our imagination as we live out in person, in the flesh, the image of God. As the poet Gerard Manley Hopkins says, For Christ plays in 10,000 places, lovely in limbs and lovely in eyes not his, to the Father through the features of men's faces. I'm going to stop there and give you a moment. Um, And we will open it up for a discussion, for questions, for responses. Peter. I didn't know if the moment was over yet. It is now. Just again, another linguistic point, which I think is worth making. Uh, we're in Hebrews, it says he is the exact imprint. Mm-hmm. Uh, the, the Greek word there is character. Mm-hmm. And, the, uh, and so the character is that which was imprinted on coins to give them value. Mm-hmm. And I think that that, uh, so I think the writer of Hebrews was doing something very deliberate there about um, Jesus bearing that imprint mm-hmm. of value uh, you know, upon his life coming from God. The, the, the other thing uh, I'm thinking of though is uh, you know, when, when Jesus says, I think in the Gospel of John, that you know, he was spoken of in the law and the prophets and the Psalms. Uh, I think we, we need to take that really seriously, that he's embodying the law. Mm-hmm. You know, the mold in the house, the, uh, the, the sacrificial laws, all of that. And I think we need to sort of, what does that mean for us, uh, the Hebrew scriptures? How do they mm-hmm. inform inform us? I think we can sort of jump to the punchline uh, a little bit too easily at times. Mm-hmm. And uh, for me, uh, kind of a happy medium is Psalm 119 mm-hmm. because it's so beautiful mm-hmm. and it's so much about the law. Mm-hmm. And uh, I, I think we lose that and we lose something more if we sort of just kind of think of New Testament things and mm-hmm. only in New Testament Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, uh, um, related to that, there's a verse in Psalm 119 that I think really captures kind of in this little nugget the idea of that living according to your design, God's design, is freedom. It said one of the ways that it's translated, uh, I think in the NIV, is I run in the path of your commands for you have set my heart free. Um, that I think is, is just a different way of thinking about commands. Mm-hmm. Hi, Taylor. How's it going? Good. Good to see you. Uh, yeah, to your point about 
eating a chameleon service is the first time that I've seen that Philippians passage next to that Colossians passage where mm-hmm. it says uh, the fullness of God dwelled in Christ bodily. Mm-hmm. And then in Philippians it says Jesus emptied himself. Mm-hmm. And so there's, it's an interesting, I don't know, I think linguistic connection there of like God mm-hmm. dwelling in Christ looks like Jesus emptying himself. Mm-hmm. Uh, and there's kind of this, this sense of uh, the, the self-sacrifice, the humility, what Jesus reveals in his emptiness is the fullness of God. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it's the first time I saw those two passages next to each other, and I just thought that totally fitted with your point. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. That's a good thought. That's just a comment. I don't have a mm-hmm. good question. No, One of my hopes for this talk was that um, your imagination would start working with scripture in that way. If you start tracing, trace the word fullness when it talks about Jesus in the New Testament. It talks about it in John 1. Um, I think that has a lot to do with, with the work of imagination. Imagination has to do with grasping, apprehending more things, right, than cool reason can, appreh- can comprehend. Um, it's kind of about, it's about fullness. It's about abundance. It's about those connections, uh, those echoes that we hear of other things, other places. That's the work of the imagination, too. Yeah. I, I, didn't, I didn't know you remember the last thing you said, the last idea you said, the last. Just now in the discussion. No, no, no. In the, in the lecture. Yeah. Um, well, I quoted. From this um, this poem by Hopkins, that's from King, uh, as Kingfishers Catch Fire. Um, do you mean before that, the concluding concluding part? Well, the, basically the last thing you said. The last. Okay, I said I can read it to you. <laughs> before the end or something. Yeah, I said God's hidden thought, His mystery now revealed, bodied forth in Christ and the Church becomes our works of imagination as we live out in person in the flesh. become our works of imagination. Mm-hmm. Yeah, as it's revealed in his body, uh, the church. As his thoughts revealed in his body, the church. His thoughts are revealed in his body, which is the church. Mm-hmm. Oh. Mm-hmm. So his thoughts are revealed through his body, mm-hmm. even though his body is imperfect. Mm-hmm. I think it's revealed as his body is renewed in the image of its creator, which is as, what that... As it's renewed, yeah. Yeah, as, it, as that Colossians passage says. Mm-hmm. I loved your... Um, you kept coming back to this theme. I mean, you have the general theme, but I loved your... Uh, this theme of um, Jesus being the bridge mm-hmm. between heaven and earth. Mm-hmm. Um, earth and heaven, heaven and earth. And how Jesus is that that bridge, the reality, and that that makes the imagination of heaven real to us who's mm-hmm. still living here on earth. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think it's very. Um, I also love how you bring our imagination in, um, and we imagine things through our senses. We mm-hmm. can also imagine things through our senses. I mean, I love. Um, so the, the the first year after um, my husband passed away. I, when I took communion every Sunday, um, it was the 
deeply spiritual, deeply, I, I literally was weeping, mm-hmm. weeping mm-hmm. when I would go up to take the bread and the juice. Um, and I couldn't control, I couldn't control mm-hmm. myself. I was a bit embarrassed, except that first year I wasn't embarrassed. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, but just weeping at taking that communion. But it was just so precious to me because it, became, it was such a spiritual activity because it was Jesus. It mm-hmm. was it was um, Jesus who was this bridge between the life I'm living here in the feeling, touching, sensing world mm-hmm. um, to the heaven of where my husband is now mm-hmm. um, that I can't touch and feel him anymore. But I felt deeply spiritual. I mm-hmm. mean, in that way, and it felt like Jesus was, was in the middle of that. Mm-hmm. And that was so... I don't know. All I can just say is just very, yeah, just uh, uh, spiritual or just very mm-hmm. alive. It was much more real yeah. and alive. Yeah, Jesus was really present to you, and you you realized, like, and he's really present to your husband, too, right? Like, he's present to both of you, that's just and that's that bridge, right? We yeah. That really, I really that's beautiful. Yeah. I don't know if I have a mm-hmm. clearly defined question, but um, I'm just starting to think, especially as we're talking about like fullness, or like mm-hmm. you know, there's so much language in Scripture about being filled with the Holy Spirit, mm-hmm. and there's there's definitely a connection there, you mm-hmm. know, Holy Spirit and inspiration, and mm-hmm. I guess yeah, I was just wondering if you had thoughts or just yeah, thinking about what, <laughs> the Holy Spirit in our imagination. Yeah, yeah, I didn't have time to put this in here, but in that verse. Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And we who with unveiled faces all reflect the Lord's glory are being transformed into his likeness with ever-increasing glory, which comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. And I really see that as the Spirit as creator. Um, You know, the Spirit that was hovering over the waters at creation, and and who hovers over the waters of baptism. I mean, it all comes together. Um, And I think that that idea of of creation, uh, creativity... Um, is really there when we see the Holy Spirit show up in Scripture. And if it's there, you know, at creation, then any time he shows up, it's something that can be in our minds, I think, and really, yeah, that idea of inspiration and creativity that comes out from that. I think that's totally a trail to trace. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You going to say something, Ben? Yeah, I, I appreciate that this... <coughs> Your use of the imagination here is, is really about all of life and not just referring to art making and people who make art. And, and that's, and, um, I had a question sort of about art making. Mm-hmm. Uh, in the, uh, near the beginning of your talk, you, were, you said something like the imagination se- seeks to communicate or desires to communicate. In other words, mm-hmm. whatever, the, whatever is apprehended by the imagination wants to be communicated, embodied, incarnate, whatever, so it can be comprehended, you know, mm-hmm. and, and, uh, and I, um, it's been a long time since I read The Mind of the Maker, mm-hmm. <laughs> so I remember being confused years ago. It's fair. Time to reread it. But this idea that somehow, the part that, that, that I, it's not exactly that it bothers me, but I just have a question about 
<clears throat> this notion that sort of the imagination apprehends something in its entirety and then just sort of embodies it. It doesn't, that doesn't um, reflect what the process of making art is for many people, myself included, mm -hmm. which is, I'm not sure what is being apprehended in my imagination until I start to embody mm -hmm. something, mm -hmm. <laughs> you know, until mm -hmm. I start to actually wrestle with the mm -hmm. material, mm -hmm. I start to like mess around with a chord progression and slog away at it and, and then, mm -hmm. and then oftentimes something does come out or sometimes not, of course, but, but, um, it's not as if there's something fully formed in the imagination that's seeking embodiment. It's mm -hmm. more like a constant back and forth and back and forth <laughs> process. Yeah, it's really recursive. Wrestling yeah. with, with the material, which has to do with respecting and serving the material. If, mm -hmm. you know, if you're a sculptor or something, you can't. It doesn't matter <laughs> become embodied unless you learn how to respect it. Mm -hmm. um, but I'm just wondering if you had any reflections about, about that or whether I misunderstood the... I think that it gives, it's not automatic. You're not, mm -hmm. you know, just auto-dictating or whatever that's called. Right. Mm -hmm. yeah. It gives you a real participation mm -hmm. in mm -hmm. that, even though it is something that reflects who God is and mm -hmm. how he's made us. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, I would refer you to, you should read The Mind of the Maker again, if that's the question that you're asking. Um I understand what you're saying. You're saying, like, it's not like you have, like, a fully formed idea and then it just, like, pops out as a thing, as a song in your case, right? Um, but you do have some kind of an idea. But when you start, you don't just, like, blindly, like, put down a chord progression and say, like, what does this say you know, to me? Um, you have some kind of an idea. Um, but, and you could also imagine an entire song just in your head, like, without making any sounds. I mean, presumably, right? Without making any sounds, without plunking anything out. In theory, you could come up with a it whole. Would be hard, but maybe. Um, <laughs> I mean, I can speak. I can speak about my own medium, right? Like, I can. I could. I could write a whole poem in my head. Yeah. Um. But that's. If it's just gonna, if I'm just gonna keep it in my head, then the chances of it just staying a glance that I forget about are very high. And then also, there is this sort of strong desire to share it with somebody else. Um, Sayers does talk about that. Um, she she does say in that in that part that I quoted actually. Um, it desires communication. It's an act of love to the poet's own imaginative work. Which I think is what I put it. And she says the poet is ultimately his own society, or not ultimately, but is his own society. So like sometimes people just write poems for themselves. Mm -hmm. But the the general thrust of imaginative work is is to get out there and to to be shared. Um, that doesn't exactly direct, directly answer mm -hmm. the, the issue that you were raising. Um, but I think Peter has a response to that, and so does Sarah. Just, uh, I mean, I, I think what Ben's pointing to is the difference between apprehension and comprehension. Mm -hmm. Whereas apprehension yeah. is almost like uh, an, an, intuit, an mm -hmm. intuition, sort of a, a, a yeah. glimpse yeah. of something. Whereas yeah, that's comprehension good. comes mm -hmm. with the hard work. Mm -hmm. uh, sometimes, mm -hmm. and the uh, and and you mentioned Dorothy Sayers and this whole idea of love. I know, I, I, I know, I, I believe she did a translation of Dante's mm -hmm. uh, yeah. Divine Comedy, mm -hmm. and I love the image of the uh, you know the, the final line of the poem. You know, the beatific vision 
is speaking of God's love as that which moves the planets and the stars mm-hmm. as being, uh, you know, for me, one of the most glorious images of, uh, of who God is and the expanse, and yet at the same time the immediacy mm-hmm. of his artistry. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Sarah, did you have a response to what Ben said? Or I, something else? I was going to also point to apprehension and mm-hmm. comprehension. And I think that I think that's tied to the, the generative quality of made things. Mm-hmm. Like there's there's something that's uh, apprehended, that intuited sense mm-hmm. that nudges an artist to try to understand it, to comprehend yeah. it, and that's what's happening in the making. Mm-hmm. And then, for example, then when my poem is read by someone else, they might have that like sense of, well, I, I, I'm giving something here even though I don't comprehend it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and then they yeah, engage yeah. in that mm-hmm. work. Of, they're actually doing a creative work to interpret and understand. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. I think that dance between apprehension and comprehension is is really key, and that's mm-hmm. that's. Thank you for pointing those that out. Um, really quick, another thing that you just said that I didn't have in here, but I just feel like you guys should know. So, poema in Greek doesn't mean poem; it means made thing, which I think is actually really elegant and like lovely. Mm-hmm. <laughs> When you, if you are a maker of things, um, it's just very encouraging, I think, because mm-hmm. you know the, the care and the work and time and love that goes into that kind of work. And so that God calls us that, I think, is really beautiful. Chris? Um, I just have a question about kind of drawing parallels, I think, between the image of God and the image of ourselves and the imagination of God and the reflection of that mm-hmm. imagination that we have. And you've talked about how. The church is kind of this example of heaven and earth meeting, and this structure being renewed, and that how God shares his imagination in that way. And I'm mm-hmm. wondering, what are some examples of our imagination being renewed in that image? Like, when you say that, do you mean, like, I don't assume you mean, like, we're getting pure thoughts, but how, what do you mean by, like, our imagination being renewed in God's image? And how does that, like, what does that look I think the more we look like Jesus in his humility and service is where we can see the evidences of that. Um, And that doesn't mean that we're like doormats and like scrubbing the floor in the corner or something. It means we're living out the design that God has for us, the vocation that God has for us. Um, But in service, not just for our own self-fulfillment, but in service to to a weary world. I mean, that's that's that quote that I read from Michael Card. He says, the art that naturally flows out of our res- obedient response to the call of God on our lives can, by grace, become water to wash the feet of sisters and brothers, cold water to quench the thirst of an unbelieving world. Um, and so if you've... I don't know if anyone has had this experience where maybe you're in, like... If you've had a prayer request that goes something like this... I just really need wisdom on how to love so-and-so at work or how to love my recalcitrant child or how to. That's asking for your imagination to be helped. How do I love this difficult person? What is that going to look like in this space, in time and 
all of all of those pieces like that's that's what's that's that's really you're like god give me an an image of what this would look like because i can't figure it out um or how or how to respond i think the imagination i mean love is is a very big part i do i do believe that love is an endless act of imagination um but i think wisdom is an act of imagination also and as you grow in wisdom Read through the book of Proverbs with this idea of wisdom as an act of imagination. It's incredible. Just like, just do it. It's great. That's your homework. Um, Because it is about, situationally, what is the good thing to do? What is the good work for me to do? Yeah. Yeah, Lenny. Just a quote from way back at the beginning. the The first part of it. Um, where it says that um, reason is the organ of truth but imagination is the organ of meaning that actually the (laughs) becoming more imaginative in the right kinds of way is how we come to understand what is actually true Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. because if you can't somehow picture it it's just words that mean nothing um, and you don't really have anything um, so it, it, there's a, a real close connection between understanding truth and your imagination it's got to take on it's got to be embodied mm-hmm. you got to see it yep. yeah yeah John I like the connection you made. I've never really made that connection before between the good works that we're called to walk walk out being acts of God's imagination in eternity past. Mm-hmm. And I think, like what you were saying a second ago, wisdom being a product of our imagination in some sense. Like we have, we can actively imagine what it would look like to walk out the will of God mm-hmm. from day to day. And uh, I was wondering, like, have you had an experience using imagination as a spiritual discipline? Because it mm-hmm. sounds like that could be used that way, like mm-hmm. going back over your day, like how would I live out this day again in a more Christ-like way? What would it, or what would tomorrow look like mm-hmm. to fill that, you know, according to the example of Jesus? Like, I don't know, do you have any, like, examples of using imagination that way as a spiritual discipline? I mean, there definitely are practices that are very particularly um, like that. Um, reading novels. <laughs> yeah, what, reading novels, which Nikhil will be happy to talk about, and I'm also happy to talk about, as we, some of you who are at tea time, I like didn't even say a word. Someone said something, and I was like, ah! Because um, they said something heretical about novels. Um, <laughs> but, um, yeah, I think... What, what, what's your connection that you're making there, Nikayla? I want to hear that. Um, yeah. This idea of um, pushing back your horizon. Mm-hmm. Um, <coughs> that Prince Trace prayer of like God push the horizon, push the horizons of my hope back. Mm-hmm. And I think novels have a way of pushing horizons back. Mm-hmm. And giving you form to imagine what depravity looks like if you've not experienced depravity or poverty or glory 
Mm-hmm. And I think spiritual disciplines like reading novels and putting yourself mm-hmm. in somebody else's life has a way of of really giving you an imagination mm-hmm. towards hope. Mm-hmm. And, um, and biographies do this, but I think that novels have a way in because of the narrative. And mm-hmm. it just ignites different parts of your imagination mm-hmm. if you're willing to there's a lecture on our database here called Reading Novels as a Spiritual Discipline, if you want to yeah. pursue that <laughs> further. Um, do you, is this directed to John's com, uh, question? Yeah, yeah, yeah for, great. Go ahead. Go ahead. Um, yeah, I was just going to say that um, all for reading novels, yes. Yeah. <laughs> but but, but uh, you can't really engage in any kind of reading without it. I mean, in, in a sense, it's about acknowledging the fact that the imagination is present in everything that we do, all the disciplines. Mm-hmm. Uh, to me, it's, it would be hard to, to think of a specific discipline that's the imagination. It would be hard to distinguish yeah. that from everything else. Like, how, mm-hmm. how can you, like, none of us have ever read a story in the Gospels and been affected by it at all without using our imagination. I mean, mm-hmm. like, you, 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 you place yourself in a story, you picture it, you hear you, mm-hmm. um, and the more study you do about the ancient context of whatever's going on, the better you mm-hmm. use your imagination. Mm-hmm. And uh, so it's um, it's kind of, it's it's already inseparable, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mean, for me, it's just more about, like, identifying the fact that it's everywhere and thinking about it more intentionally. You know? Yeah, that's a great example. I think another example is in prayer. Um, you know, if we, even if we just say the Lord's Prayer, you start with Our Father, which is an image that God gave us to use to refer to him so that we, I mean, God is invisible, right? But father is something that has a local habitation and a name, like, and it's a, it's something we can, our senses can grasp onto. Um, and that can be a really difficult thing for our senses to grasp onto, depending on what our, what our fathers on earth are like. But, um, but it's something that our imagination needs to grapple with, right? Just to start praying. Um, or, like we talked about in Permian the other, other day, the Lord is my shepherd. Like that's that's a metaphor already that is super fruitful for the imagination. So I think some of, some of it is like slowing down just in your reading of scripture and looking for that. Yeah, Sarah. I was just thinking um, in terms of an example of John of how the imagination might work in server doing your day. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, I think. I think we do this involuntarily, but usually in more destructive ways. Like, mm-hmm. if there's a moment of conflict or embarrassment or I feel, you know, slighted or whatever, my imagination is like making speeches. <laughs> and so, you know, like, I think the baptized imagination is maybe then doing the work of sort of reflecting on that, being like, wow, what, <laughs> that really hit a nerve. There's some, there's something in there that needs God's care and attention and healing. Uh, maybe I actually need to direct some of that energy toward empathy. Like, mm-hmm. oh, maybe the other person, whatever, I don't know, like, I took something personally that I didn't need to take personally. Mm-hmm. Or maybe I need to try to imagine what a reconciliatory conversation might look like. <laughs> Mm-hmm. Um, so, I, yeah, I think, at least for me, I I always find when I'm 
starting to spin out, that's usually a sign that I, I need to actually lean into personal engagement. <laughs> yeah. I mean, yeah, thinking about this, the idea of love as an act of imagination, we think about, like, love is patient, love is kind, love keeps no record of wrongs, love believes the best is one way we could, you know, say that. Yeah, it takes a lot of imagination to believe the best sometimes, right? Um, especially when you feel hurt or slighted. Um, yeah, there's, there's a lot there. Yeah, Taylor. Uh, just thinking about how, like, how the redemptive imagination really helps us in life too, in the life of faith. Thinking about, um, and thinking about too, the unrenewed imagination versus the renewed imagination. Um, like the cross is an example of unrenewed imagination. So it took imagination to think of how to torture a person that awfully, right? Mm-hmm. And then God's imagination was, how can I use that mm-hmm. for all this redemption and saving of souls and mm-hmm. new creation and so on? And so I think I think that's an invitation. I love that that notion that Kayla said of the pushing back horizons. I think the mm-hmm. cross is like the ultimate one, right? Mm-hmm. Because it's like, okay, so even that can be used for redemption. Mm-hmm. How can my situation be used for redemption? Uh for me, that's given me a lot of strength in, in deep pits. And mm-hmm. like, okay, okay, there were worse. Jesus was in a worse situation, and God used that, and mm-hmm. there was triumph, and there was there was glory mm-hmm. and, and redemption. And so, I think the redemptive imagination plays a huge role in my in my experience of walking in faith. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that's part of how we, our creators in the world too, is trying to reenact what God did with the cross, which was take mm-hmm. the fall and then turn it into something redemptive and beautiful. Um, and so I think those were some of the pieces mm-hmm. I was thinking of, how the cross plays a role in, mm-hmm. in imagination. Mm-hmm. It takes imagination to think of how that could have worked for good. Mm-hmm. Um, but it did. Mm-hmm. So. Yeah. yeah, Peter. Uh, in, in your preparations for this, did, did you come across anything sort of equating or just trying maybe to set side by side imagination and contemplative activity where mm-hmm. sometimes I think imagination for some can sort of be kind of amorphous and go anywhere uh, uh, in any direction whereas contemplation still kind of is a mental act but much more focused mm-hmm. uh, and I would, I would think that that sort of contemplation where you're still sort of using the imagination uh, kind of to, 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 to stay with the uh, image of an artist would it would the contemplative imagination be more like a Van Eyck painting and the imagination imagination be sort of more impressionistic you know I'm, 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 I wonder yeah, that's a, that's definitely a trail <laughs> that you could go down. Um, I haven't seen anything that that immediately makes that like explicitly makes that connection. Um, Lenny, Lenny just came from like a conference about well, the imagination. Yeah. The, other, the other thing that we're I work with a lot of teachers in the school. Mm-hmm. We and we just had a teachers conference, but we are reading this year 
a book called Leisure, the Basis of Culture. Yes, mm-hmm. And that's about, I mean, well, then think about contemplation as, you know, the, it's not the active, ratio kind of knowing. Right. Um, it's, and it, it does require, I mean, it is an active imagination. It's receiving, it's passive. It's not this, you know, active work um, that I get a lot of credit for, and the harder it is, the more value it is to, to be still and know that I am God. This contemplation, it all be, it, one of his best lines in that book is, it all begins with a gift. Mm-hmm. And and it's the wrong view of, of work. <laughs> it's it's me, and the work has to do with how hard it is, and the harder the better. <laughs> and that's, that's our modern society. I mean, so I think there's there's a huge one mm-hmm. imagination and contemplation. Yeah, you you should also listen to part one, Peter, <laughs> of this series. Um, because I talk a little bit, and kind of when you were talking about like amorphous imagination, I talk a lot in that about the difference between imagination and fantasy, which I think is also a really helpful, helpful distinction. And so I refer you to that. Um, if that's a question that you have, like, well, how is this not just like going off into la la land and daydreaming? Um, I think because that's that's important. Yeah, Joshua. Just a quick thought on John's thing that was sort of maybe elaborating a little bit more. Yeah. <laughs> Imagination. One of the things that both Martin Luther, um, Martin Luther practiced with the Lord's Prayer, and then C.S. Lewis has this funny word for it. He calls it like festooning, uh, <laughs> like on the Lord's Prayer. Uh, little, I think that's what he calls it. His little book. <laughs> but basically, it's like you, you each day as you recite it, part, partly because it's so familiar, it's really easy to keep it like at arm's length, you know. But to take one aspect of it and more one line and put it in your own words, so and kind of enter it into a different way. So, mm-hmm. you know, you do want to pray for the provision of daily bread, but then maybe you pause there to think, well, who else needs bread, mm-hmm. and what sort of bread do people like? Where, you know, and you can take it any number of directions mm-hmm. to. Um, and so, kind of pausing, like letting letting the spirit kind of guide you, and using your imagination to enter into, yeah, very familiar words, but words that are actually pretty expansive. Mm-hmm. Can cover you know, all of life. So anyway, and who wouldn't want to festoon? Um, <laughs> I, I think that's what he calls it. If not, <laughs> go, that's what like we're going to start calling it. Like, <laughs> yeah, it's, like awesome. it's like riffing. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, I think I think that's also something that, um, especially especially if you've been in particular kinds of uh, Bible hermeneutics classes, uh, you get very scared about doing that. <laughs> you get scared away from doing that, um, and and there there are there are practices. Uh, there's the the Ignatian practice of. Um, Oh, what's it called? I don't remember what it's called, but basically inhabiting a Bible story. So as you read the story, you like imagine that you're there, you know, you're one of the people in the crowd listening to the Sermon on the Mount or at the feeding of the 5,000 or whatever. And you like, what do you feel under, under you? What it, what does it smell like? You know, all of those things you really kind of get there. Um, almost like, you know, like an actor 
getting getting into character. Um, what would it sound like for Jesus to say these words, you know, to you there? Um, that's that's another example of a, of a spiritual practice. Yeah. Sorry, just even you saying this. Uh, ben also gave a lecture. Well, he did it as a Bible study a couple times. Um, on a parable. Um, and do you remember what I'm talking about? Jesus is it the workers yeah. in the vineyard? The workers in the vineyard. Yeah, and it was just, it's a great listen, but it's also just a good way to approach like the stories that Jesus tells as sort of like you kind of step like which which sort of seed am I? Or which sort of, like which which other uh, worker in the vineyard am I most frustrated with? Who do I immediately identify with? Yeah, yeah, it's actually, yeah, it's, and so I think there's something, um, I had a professor that said, if anyone, if you ever hear a preacher preach on a parable and say, the meaning of this parable is, he's like, cover your ears. (laughs) 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 Because there, of course there is, a meaning, but it's like inviting you into an encounter mm-hmm. with yourself and with God, um, and mm-hmm. with the kingdom breaking mm-hmm. in through um, the words of Jesus. So, anyway, yeah. What do? You, what is it? The workers in the vineyard. Yeah, it's the workers. Oh. It's, it's where the um, the parable that Jesus tells, where the, uh, the the owner of the vineyard goes out and hires people and brings mm-hmm. back people throughout the day. Mm-hmm. They work for different lengths of time, but they all get paid the same. Yeah. And people have been working all day are angry. Yeah. And, and, and a lot of people reading that parable get angry. <laughs> um, and the reason is probably because we all identify with the people that have been working hard all day. Yeah. Somehow, like, we wouldn't get angry if we didn't identify with this. Yeah. If, if, if you identify with the person yeah. that slipped in, worked one hour, and got paid a whole day's wage, yeah, then yeah, I wouldn't yeah. be angry about that yeah, parable. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. I'm like, that is awesome. Yeah, it's a good way to, it, it models, like, I mean, it's, it's a really good talk, but it also just models, I think, a way mm-hmm. to step into Jesus' teaching in a way that, mm-hmm. yeah, how it rubs people. Mm-hmm. You yeah. know, like, some people in ways that were really exciting and new and with other people that were pretty bothered by it. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, Meredith. I'm still kind of marinating on a comment that the woman in front of me I don't hear any made uh, about embodiment. Mm-hmm. I appreciate your comment. Um, but I was just thinking about how if we are so God, like what you said about God's image being expressed mm-hmm. in Jesus, then we're also creating an image of God, meaning like each, like the goodness in us is also an expression of God's mm-hmm. imagination, and that goes for like all the diversity in the world, mm-hmm. and like it just is so mind blowing how like mm-hmm. beautiful and vast mm-hmm. and good yeah. So, yeah, thank you for sharing that. Yeah, yeah. I was just thinking what he said before. I think when I really alluded to it. Excuse my voice. <clears throat> um, about the. Uh, the workers, they, they uh, uh, some bore the whole heat of the day, mm-hmm. and the others just bore the final hour, just one hour. And they got the same pay. But there's one other thing that's usually not noticed. And that is, if you read it carefully, well, the first people, it does make it clear, they gave an agreement, mm-hmm. yes. solid. They could not lose their money because they had that. Written agreement. Mm-hmm. The final people, all he said was, go in and work. Mm-hmm. 
He didn't promise them a single thing. Faith required faith. The first people didn't require anything. The middle people required some faith. The final people required total faith because they were promised nothing. Yeah. Yeah, they didn't know they were getting anything. That's a good point, yeah. Hmm. That's good. Yeah. Hey, Hi. yes. Yeah. Uh, so I think one thing I'm struggling that I'd love your insight on that I'm just trying to wrap my brain around as I'm processing all the notes is the, the thought of us in the church and people as the manifestation of the imagination of God. But then knowing how that thought can lead to like a dangerous train of thought in that, oh, I am the manifestation of the imagination of God so my thoughts, beliefs, and actions are right. Mm-hmm. And then like thinking of the hyperpolarization of the church and how segmented and fractured we mm-hmm. are historically and currently in terms of all the schisms and whatnot, uh, and then the history. So just how do we wrestle with being the imagination of God but then also being wrong and mm-hmm. also having other people be wrong and just navigating mm-hmm. the brokenness and the fracturedness mm-hmm. along with the um, manifestation and imagination. I'm just kind of like trying to wrap my brain around all that. Yeah. A lot of questions in one. Yeah, I think I want to, um, let me see if I can find where I actually said that. Because there's a key bit in there that I think is a, is a really helpful um, clarification. Um, the So if, if imagination gives form to thought, right, um, the God has many thoughts that we probably don't know. I mean, I assume God has many thoughts that we don't know anything about that are like his private projects. Um, his, his mind is vaster than anything that we can apprehend or comprehend. Um, but his great thought that we do know about um, is that all things should be reconciled to him in Jesus. Um, and that's, that's what some of those, some of those passages that are referred to really talk about that, that his, um, you know, that all, I'm like blanking on all of them now, but that all things should be reconciled in Jesus. That's basically what it says. Um, that thought continues to be bodied forth in his church. So when the church is not living that out, not living out that, that idea of reconciliation, um, which there's, there's freedom for us to refuse <laughs> to, um, to embody that, I think, um, that that is where we get conflicts and, and problems, um, I think, in some ways. But I think it's important to clarify that that it's not just like everything the church does is God's thought, you know, being embodied. It's his particular thought of of all things being reconciled to Christ. So if a if if a church is exclusive in some way and is like, no, you're not the kind of people that we like in here, that's obviously not embodying God's thought that everyone should be reconciled to God, right? Um, so I, th- I, th- I think, does that help clarify a little bit? Yeah, I think I'm thinking particularly of, I don't know if you've read the book, When Helping Hurts, and just like that embodiment of doing something so good for someone, and that still not being necessarily the imagination of God for that person. So how do we navigate mm-hmm. that, imagine this, that imagination of God and living God out, doing what is good and truthful from our perspective, while also that not being good and truthful for the other person's perspective, if that makes sense. Like, knowing those sticky situations where you are seeking and working towards reconciliation, but there's that maybe communication barrier between, like, Mm -hmm. what you see as goodness and what someone else sees as goodness, or what you see as justice and what someone else sees as justice, where you're both working toward 
reconciliation, but from super different lenses. Yeah, so I think that's where that that wisdom piece is really important. And also, um, I've talked about this in another lecture, I think. Um, When I talk about love being an endless act of imagination, it's also really risky. (laughs) Um, That idea of, um, you know, when Jesus' golden rule, do unto others as you would have them do unto you, that takes imagination, right? Because I have to think, what would I want? this person do for me if I was in their situation. But I could get that wrong. Like, I could miss that. It, it might be what would be good for me, but they're like, no. Like, you know, I might be like, well, I really would, I'm really, if I'm sad, I want to hug, so I'm going to hug this person. And that person's like, don't hug me, you know. Um, that's like a simple example. but it, And that could, could go to, like, humanitarian aid. Like, it could be that big of a thing, too, where that sort of situation happens. And so I think there is that piece that's that's risky. Um there's the glorious ruin part. Yeah, yeah. Yes, you're right. Yeah. We're not always going to... We really aren't going to... Yeah, all things. Um, I love in... Um, this is in Hebrews, maybe? I think, yeah, uh, where it says that we do not yet see all things brought under Christ, but we see Jesus. And that's that piece again of like, are we looking at our reference image? Really looking at it. Are we just drawing what we think we know? Or are we drawing from what we see? Like, and that means always, like going back, going back again and again to that, to our reference image with Jesus. Yeah. Um, John, did you have something back here? Yeah, I mean, I haven't read When the Helping Hurts, but my, my understanding is it's, it's all about like community, it's about knowing and, and I know from like American perspective, we can be like, oh, let's ship rice to Haiti because they're hungry, and then we, we, you know, put the rice farmers out of business. And, mm-hmm. you, you know, like we just think it's a good thing. So I think a lot of it has to do with understanding and being in communities. And, uh, yeah. Yeah, that's that knowledge piece, like being renewed in knowledge, not just I know some facts like, oh, they're hungry down there, but I know, understand, recognize the situation, you know, in a in a much deeper way. It takes it's it's I've called it imaginative work this whole time. It is work. It's not just like I'm gonna sit here and daydream about what would be the best thing to do. No, it's real work. And if you've ever made a thing, you know that. If you've done any kind of artistic work, it's work. And it's the same in a, in the art of living. Yeah. And to your other point, too, it takes a lot of humility. Mm-hmm. Like, we're trying to know what we could, we don't know everything. Yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Going huge. That mm-hmm. That's huge, yeah. Sure. Yeah, Ben. Another quick thought. The Francis often talked about is like the, what spirituality is in Christian terms is it's a moment-to-moment awareness of the cross mm-hmm. flying now, right? moment to moment, um, awareness of forgiveness being a reality, which means many, many times a day, probably for most of us, having to consciously say, well, well in this moment of failure or whatever, it was for this. You know, the, cross, the cross applies to this. The blood of Jesus applies mm-hmm. to this. That is just such a work of the imagination. Yeah. <laughs> To, to apply to apply this thing that happened two thousand years ago, the, the the amazing theological weight of that, and to say it, it applies to this 
random stupid thing I just did. Mm-hmm. That's huge. Like, that, the, the imagination makes this massive, like, leap mm-hmm. from one to the other. Mm-hmm. And yet that's just the ordinary life of being a Christian, mm-hmm. is being able to do that. Mm-hmm. Being able to apply that right now. And yeah. And again. And again, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, that's a really good point. It's really helpful. Mm-hmm. Well, friends, it's getting close to bedtime, so I'm going to wrap it up.